This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. I'm really excited about this conversation we're about to have because I think it is such a fundamental part of the overall how do we heal the village conversation that we don't often focus on. And that's on the Ujamaa component, the cooperative economics component, the way we build institutions that operate to control, build and expand our wealth, the way we maintain the institutions that are there to help us expand and grow our wealth, the way we invest in institutions that are there to help us expand and grow our wealth. All are really important questions. And we have a history that speaks to the importance of us engaging in cooperative economics, but doing so in institutions that are also Ujamaa connected, because you can't just be cooperative economicing in institutions like, say, the Freedmen's Bank, which was not really set up with an Ujamaa perspective because then you'll end up penniless and then not trusting government again. Joining me right now is Terry Williams. She's the president and chief operating officer and serves on the board of directors of One United Bank, the nation's largest black-owned bank. She's responsible for the implementation of the bank's strategic initiatives as well as its day-to-day operations. Under her leadership, One United Bank has consolidated the four banks and launched a digital platform to create a really powerful national brand that has been supported by innovative products and services to close the racial wealth gap. She's not new to this, y'all. She is true to this. She's got more than 30 years of financial services expertise from institutions like Bank of America and American Express, where she was one of the youngest vice presidents. So yeah, she's been in the game for a minute. She has an MBA from Harvard University, a BA with distinction in economics from Brown University. She served as the chairman of the Black Economic Council in Massachusetts and Boston is on the board of the 79th Street Corridor in Miami. She is about this life and we are so very grateful uh, that she was able to carve out some time for us and join us here on this show terry williams it's a real pleasure to have you here it's great to be here thank you it is mutual because you are putting your money where your mouth is sorry to be so corny but you see what i did there i love a good corny joke uh let's talk about why your institution is so important i know that you and your partners have you know you this is an a, a real effort to be centered and rooted in community talk with us about why someone like yourself who quite frankly could have continued at a very successful career in corporate America, gaining personal profit. Why did you decide to take on this project? And, and let's talk about the roots of this institution. For me personally, I, I've always had a passion for economics and you know, economics major and, and, and banking and money, but I really wanted to also bring that expertise to our community, uh, to the black community. And um, I found that the best way, the only way to do that is to actually own a bank. Mm. I mean, the reality is that Mm -hmm. banking is the foundation for all communities to build wealth. You know, the the role of banks is to be a place where people can deposit their money safely and that that money could be lent out to the community in order for families and businesses to, to build wealth. And so uh, for me, it, it really started with an understanding of the importance of banking, not just to Black folks, but to all folks. And that really is how the journey began with, okay, you know, we need to own a bank. Um, mm. We need to own many banks. Mm. And then we need to use that bank 
using that banking knowledge, expertise, and use the tools of banking to provide products and services to the needs of our community. And that's what this has all been about. Can we talk about what happens? Actually, there's a weird echo. I, Shayla, I'm not sure if you hear that. There's a weird echo. I just want to make sure that I'm not hearing something that you all are hearing because this is an important information. I want to make sure the audience gets access to this. Can you talk with us a little bit about what happens when communities don't have access to actual banks, when all you've got are check cashing institutions, you know, a place where you can wire and receive money? What does that do to the economic sustainability of a community? Yeah, it really, it really kills it. Um, and it really um, ends up charging fees to our community that could use for other reasons. Um, you really can't build wealth without, you know, having a bank or having a savings account. You know, people will talk now about, well, you know, savings account doesn't pay that much interest. And, you know, you should use, you know, money to invest in other things, which is true. However, the majority of our community doesn't have enough savings, and you really need to start with a savings account. It, it protects you in case of an emergency. You know, it allows you to, you know, to buy a home, to, you know, to start a business. And so uh, if you're just using a cashier to cash your check, which, by the way, when I got out of college, I did. So I know exactly, you know, if you're just doing that, um, you're really not, you know, you're really not on the journey to wealth building. When it comes to our connection to institutions with regards to our finances, we have a really fraught history. Uh, Ms. Williams, as you know, that I, I mentioned briefly, kind of glibly, but I mentioned earlier the Freedmen's Bank, and this is one of the first opportunities that black people had to come together and, and deposit their money in an institution that would take it, as opposed to being prohibited from doing so because, they, because the racism would not allow them to have access to the financial services and products there. And that ended really miserably. Miserably, uh, disastrously, some might say, for our community. And that, I think, that history, and for those of you who are wondering, what is the Freedmen's Bank? This is, again, post-Civil War. We had this institution along with the 40 Acres and a Mule. Uh, the Freedmen's Bank was supposed to be an institution that black people could come together. And we did. Deposited millions of dollars as formerly enslaved people. And speculators and lack of regulation really allowed that money to be stolen from our community. Can you talk with us about some of the difficulties you have experienced as the head of the largest Black-owned bank when it comes to rebuilding that trust, trust that you didn't break, but that because you are a part of this community, the economics institution community, we're often looking at these banks as just nameless, faceless institutions that we don't trust. What are some of the difficulties and challenges you and your organization have faced to really integrate yourself into our community and establish a nature of trust and consistency in the service delivery there? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that word trust, because it really is about trust. And we really have worked hard to ensure that our community, uh, first of all, is even aware that there are black owned banks out there. And, you know, and then I, you know, I always say, OK, there's there's no white man behind the curtain. You know, we actually do own the bank and we do run the <laughs> bank, um, <laughs> you know, and um, so that's the first is people didn't even, you know, they were like, oh, they won't let us own the bank. Like, oh, no, we actually do. Um, but then the second is, you know, why should you trust us? And it, it, you know, it's one of these things where a lot of us have grown up with the sense that their ice is colder, mm. you know, meaning if, if you have a choice between a white doctor and a black doctor, you should go to the white doctor because their ice is colder or they're better, you know. And I think that this next generation in particular, but even those of us that are older, 
are starting to see that that's absolutely not the case. And in fact, that institutions that are black owned or, you know, I will call that black doctor or that black, you know, store or that black bank. First of all, we know we have to work twice as hard to be considered just as good. Right. So when you think about that, I mean, we've been in business now for 50 years and, you know, we've had to work twice as hard over this time in order to be not just, just as good. We are not just as good. And let me just be clear, we have a digital platform that will rival any bank out there. And you can go to oneunite.com, you can open up an account anywhere in the country, you can take a picture of your check. We have more surcharge-free ATMs than any other bank, any other bank, any other bank in the country. Mm. So, you know, there are a lot of ways in which we are better, but we as a community do have to get over you know, this, this sense that, you know, that their ice is colder. And Friedman is a, is a good example of that. They, you know, Friedman was not lost because of Black people. Friedman was lost is because our money was taken and, and invested by white speculators. And that's how the money was lost. It was not lost because Black people didn't know how to manage money. It was lost because our money was taken by white speculators and, and they speculated and lost our money. Um, but I will also say, because especially, you know, during, during this time when everything's happening in banking, you know, we are FDIC insured, you know, our community does not need to worry about banks, you know, banks are, are secure. Uh, FDIC insurance has been around now for 90 years. No one has lost any money. And you can even have more than $250,000 if you're a couple. It actually mm -hmm. can be $500,000 um, that is FDIC insured. I didn't know. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, the this, the separation out for the couple. So I'm glad. Or at least we haven't talked about that on air. I'm glad that you mentioned that. We usually just reference the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar cap uh, for FDIC insurance. But that's a really important point for those of you who are married. Or I don't know if domestic right. partnerships would also qualify here. But yes. if so if yep. you are jointly owning yep. this account, if you have a joint account. Right. If you have a joint account, it's two fifty per person. When it comes to your understanding of our the psychosis that we're navigating, when you said we still believe that the white man's ice is colder, talk to us about how your knowledge of that helps and shows up in the service delivery. Because that, to me, knowing that is a superpower, mm -hmm. right? Being able to have mm -hmm. policies built around that knowledge and that intimate understanding of how we operate and how we think, that, to me, says a lot. How do you see that mm -hmm. in terms of better positioning mm -hmm. an institution like yours to be able to serve the needs of our community. And, and I'm asking this, yes, because I want you to brag about yourself a little bit, but I'm also asking because I want the audience to tie how intimacy and familiarity and working within community does often put us in a position where we can authentically show up as ourselves and are able to provide for our needs in ways that nobody else possibly can. So what does that knowledge about us, that, that firsthand understanding, growing up and hearing those same comments at the dinner table, growing up and seeing how we struggle, how does that factor into your policy decision-making in a way that, you know, one of the other banks, perhaps even that you've worked for in the past, just could never yeah, well, even for us, it has been a journey. So I, I just want to be clear for people that, you know, sort of are on this path, you know, we used to position ourselves as a bank that happened to be black owned. Mm. And we were like, you know, wow, you know, that's not who we are. We are actually a black owned bank and we are unapologetically black. But when we made that that sort of leap, um, a lot of people said, oh, I don't know if you should do that, you know. Because, you know, white people aren't going to bank with you because you're talking about you're black and black people ain't going to bank with you because you're talking about you're black, you know. And but I would tell you, 
that since we made that decision, our customer base has increased threefold. And the reason is because we are speaking in our, you know, unapologetically black, authentic voice. Mm. And if you're talking about your money, you know, you really want people to be authentic with you. You want people to tell you, you know, sort of the, the right path, not, you know, because it's a marketing gimmick or not because they're trying to sell you something, but to say, hey, I went down this path and this is what I found. So that's that's one thing. And then the second piece of it is just the services that we offer. You know, I, I keep pounding on, you know, my desk about some specific things about Black folks that we need to do. One is that we need to set up an automatic savings account. Mm. Like we need to understand what wealthy people understand, which is that if it goes in your pocket, you're more likely to spend it. And as your income rises, your expenses just have a tendency to rise with your income. So you need to take some money out of your out of your paycheck and put it into a savings account automatically so you don't even touch it. That is the only way to build wealth. I keep pounding, 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 and all of a sudden, you know, people's light bulbs will go off. Oh, that's what you mean. And then when they do it, they see how much it, you know, they're just building wealth without even missing the money. Mm. So that's the one thing, you know, and, and because we know this, you know, because we've seen it, you know, for myself, I've been to the, you know, the top of the pyramid in terms of corporations and boards and Harvard Business School, and I could see how it's done. And then I bring those lessons back into our community. The other thing I say is to buy a home. Home ownership is the biggest difference between black and white wealth. I say buy a home, even if you have to buy a hut. And I say <laughs> that because sometimes we get caught up. <laughs> Sometimes we get caught up into our dream home. It's not our dream home. And we're like looking for a dream home. And, you know, it's not in the right area. It's not in the right, you know. And I'm just like, I don't care what it is. Think of it as your first home. And mm -hmm. if it's, even if you have a home, you know, think about refinancing. That's another thing we don't do enough, refinancing. Also think about buying investment property, you know, because that's another way to build wealth. That doesn't mean that there are other things. Invest in the stock market. There's Bitcoin. There's, you know, there are a lot of ways to build wealth, but the foundation has to be savings and should also include some ownership of real estate. And the reason for the real estate ownership is because there are tax advantages that you don't get with other investments. Mm, I love what you're saying. Tax and leverage. Tax and leverage. This is important. And, and that automatic savings account, we uh, we have an account, uh, HELOC, and we ended up, we would just have a certain, every, every, out of every check, just had, you know, X amount of hundreds of dollars that would just go automatically to it because we just wanted to pay it down aggressively. Well, we forgot that we had the money coming out, going to, to pay to a separate account that we would use to pay. So we just kept, money just kept going there. We didn't even realize because we were used to the money coming out. So when there was no longer something right. to pay, we, the money was just stacking up there. And we were like, oh, well, look at us with a little nest egg we didn't even know anything about or, or realize was right. nesting right. in quite that way. And, and you know, one of the right. things that you mentioned was this in difference between income and wealth. And when I first started out as a corporate lawyer, when I transitioned then into private practice, bankruptcy and financial triage was a lot of the work that I had to do. And what that meant was uh, having things like uh, recognizing that our community faces a lot of debt, consumer loan debt, uh, consumer credit card debt and things of that nature. And most of my clients who were filing bankruptcy, I think to a person, 99.9% .9 of them were black 
well-paid employees who had wonderful income levels, but who were what I considered first-generation high-income earners who did not have access to the information about how to manage their financial affairs, uh, did not have access to the information about how to really invest, and they were good at having an income. They were terrible at converting that income into wealth. What insight do you have for those of us who, you know, Urban View is a very blessed audience. If you can afford to pay for satellite radio, you're doing better than a lot of folks in the country. How can we get better at not just getting high paying jobs, but learning how to transfer those jobs and the income that comes from there into wealth building opportunities, much like the ones you're discussing? No, that's a very good uh, question. Um, and, and I think it starts with what you just said is understanding the difference between income and wealth and recognizing that, um, in order to build wealth, you, you need to focus your income on, on appreciating assets as opposed to depreciating assets. So, you know, again, whether it's the house, whether it's investing in the stock market, as opposed to, you know, maybe spend less on a car, spend less on clothes, you know, spend, spend more on, you know, training, you know, books or things that are going to improve your, you know, invest in yourself. You know, be careful about debt, um, especially today, student loan debt. You know, when I was growing up, you know, and I, I always say this people, I, I went to Brown University and the tuition was $7,000. Today it's $70,000. Wow. You know, when I got out of school, my first, my first job, I got paid $15,000. So according to, if, if things had remain the same when you got out when you get out of school today and your 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 tuition 70,000 that means your first job should pay 150,000 okay it does mm. not so the reality is that income has not kept up with the cost of going to school so you have to be very strategic about how you you know spend your student loan money whether that's going to community college whether that's you know uh going to a school that is more affordable you know, grants, scholarships, but really, you know, try to invest in yourself, but avoid as much debt as possible. Mm. And that includes, you know, you mentioned earlier wanting the dream house. Now I will confess we have a house. It is not my dream house. I was very, I was taken in by the archways. There were some features of the house that I really, really liked, but it, the house was built in the late 1880s. It has been one massive construction headache after another. I, I have had to at points pray over the house, Miss Williams, because I had so much anger about other, it felt like a money pit. I don't know if you remember that movie, uh, but money pit, it felt like a money pit. Yes, However, yes. However, now that we invested and we did what we needed to do to bring the house up to current code and it looks amazing inside, it has been a really beneficial investment for us. When I divorced myself from thinking, I got to have a dream home. I want the luxury home that I want all my friends to come to. So I have a wonderful housewarming. Like, I mean, we had to really shake up our understanding of what owning a home was supposed to be. And it's not just supposed to be about, you know, can I have 
serve a lovely dinner when people want to come over. It also should be a fundamental part of your economic outlook. Help us break that down a little bit because I feel like there are some thought processes that we really need to attack um, with some expertise like yourself or some experts like yourself. Help us to unpack why it is that we think the way that we do about things like homeownership. And, and on the other side of that, you have people who are afraid of homeownership because renting an apartment is maybe all that they know. Renting a home is all that they know. And I know a lot of us who get concerned about the paperwork. We're concerned about the steps. It's a complicated process. We haven't seen a lot of people navigate it effectively. Talk to us about how we can begin unlearning some of the fears that we have around homeownership and some of the really limiting views about homeownership that say it's got to be like, you know, like your car, something you need to ball out on, even if it's something you can't afford necessarily at that particular level. If it's in a neighborhood uh, that you might really want to be in, but perhaps it's not the best in terms of investment. How do we shift the way that we think about home ownership so that we are able to see it as a far more effective part of our overall wealth development process? Yeah, no, it's a, again, great, great question. Um, I think one of the things that we have to do is to recognize that what we see on television is not realistic. Mm. You know, I, you know, I always go back to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and that, you know, fabulous home that, you know, his uncle lived in and, you know, was in Bel-Air. You know, the, the, the reality is that, you know, a judge even at that time was unlikely to live in that fabulous mansion in Bel-Air. Right. And yet that was our right. view of what a fabulous home was. And we all wanted that, you know, so um and so I think, you know, and you and you see it now on, you know, Housewives of Atlanta, you see all these fabulous homes. And what what you have to recognize is that, you know, that's TV. <laughs> you know, the reality is much different than that. Right. And what you also we also need to understand is that it it's better to be in. It's better to have that first home because then you can move to the second home or the third home to eventually your dream home. So you have to think of it as really the first step you know, and not the end, you know, it's not where you begin, it's, you know, where you end up. And so having that first home and, and, and the, the benefit of home ownership, as I, as I mentioned, is taxes, but it's also leverage mm. for, you know, it's one of the few investments that you can make where you can put down and it, it does sound like a lot in some cases, you know, I'll say 20% is, you know, sort of the traditional, but in some, in some communities, you can actually get down payment assistance as a first time home buyer. And I'm going to use Miami as an example. You can get up to $70,000 in down payment assistance to buy a home in Miami. Wow. $70,000. $70, but now that some does mean you have, have to live with Ron DeSantis. So I don't know if that payoff is quite <laughs> as nice. So if you can get past that and the school destruction or what's happening in the schools, then that is that sounds like an amazing deal, Terry Williams. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like when I was growing up in Florida, the, the, the state was Democrat. Mm. So I, all I say is, you know, time heals all all wounds, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens, you know, over time. But, but my point is only that there are these great programs that are out there. So check in your community to make sure that, you know, that you're not eligible for one of these programs that give you down payment assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, but even beyond that, even if it's, you know, there's also 3% down, 5% down, there are a lot of great programs out there. Uh, there are programs that will you know, look at your rent payments, you know, to determine whether or not you qualify for a home. 
But what you can do when you buy that home, let's say you put 3% down, that means 97% of it is going to be through a mortgage. But when that home appreciates, all the appreciation is going to go to you. Right. You know, that mortgage, you're going to be paying down, but that home, as it appreciates, all of that appreciation is going to inure to you. And that's how you build wealth. Mm -hmm. And then you, you can sell that home at some point, take that appreciation and invest it in your second home or your third home. You know, investment property is another you know idea is to, you know, look at a two family home so that you can have a, a renter or come together as a family. If you have two or three family members living in the same city, come together as a family and buy a, you know, a triple decker or something, you know, a, a multifamily home Yep. and have everyone, you know, so you're in essence paying rent, you know, to your family as opposed to, to you know, some you know other landlord. So there's so many ways to do it. Mm. And I, I do think that, uh, I do think we are getting a lot smarter. Now, let's be clear. We have a wealth gap, not because of anything we did, but things that were done to us. We mm. have only been legally legally free for about 50 to 60 years where we could you know, live wherever we wanted to live, that we could have the jobs we have without discrimination. That has only been the case. And you talk about this a lot in, on your show which is why I love your show, no, you know, all the issues you. that we've had that have, that have impacted, you know, our lives, you know, the reason that we could go to the schools we go to or to live in the neighborhoods we, we live in is because of, you know, whether it's the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, the Civil Rights Act, but that was not that long ago. Mm. And there were, before then, there were all kinds of hurdles that were stopping us from building wealth. So, it, you know, we shouldn't feel bad that we're, we're not there yet. We, yeah. We're just at the beginning stages. They have multiple, you know, multiple centuries, you know, ahead of us where for 250 years, you know, we were providing them with free labor. So mm. we shouldn't feel bad about where we are, but we should recognize that in order to be on that road to wealth building, you need to focus on on ownership and, and savings and, and investments. I, this is so important, and I really am hoping that people are, are – I, I think they are. I think people are waking up more to the realities that we're facing. I think people are more aware of the potential, the opportunities that exist. And I'm excited about that because it feels like we're, we're turning a corner in many ways, it, although at the same time it also feels like uh, they're trying to prevent that corner from being turned at by any means necessary uh, in some <laughs> aspects of the world. But I think that's one of the reasons having institutions like one united is so very important you have to build and maintain and that's the part that i think a lot of us don't get that when you say we have only been really free 50 to 60 years that is 1000 percent correct and so you know we're often comparing ourselves to people to other groups that have had as you said centuries i remember reading a report a few years ago that said it would take about 228 years for the racial wealth gap to close and i thought huh what was happening 228 years ago that would create that sort of circumstance where you know what so when you think about it that way where we're at today is directly related to the racism that was at the heart of the founding of this nation and which contributed to our current economic reality so I, i'm so grateful for you and the work that you all are doing at one united bank i know that you are extremely responsive i've seen people who have ta included me in tags to the one united uh, support line on, or the support account on twitter and i see the responses and i know that when people have a 
concern, you're also very approachable and you take in the concerns, you take in the, the questions, the, the critiques, you produce thoughtful responses to them. I've watched y'all for a number of years now and it's always been consistently the same thing. So I'm grateful for you. And I just need to know in terms of how other banks uh, that are owned by people of color, how does One United fare in terms of the amount of assets that you currently have in it? Because it seems to me that if an institution is able to have the most uh, ATM surcharge free ATMs, the largest network of anywhere in the country, and you're doing the things that you're doing, it seems that more of us need to be putting more of our assets in your institution. But how does One United compare or fare as compared to other banks that are owned by groups of color? And I want people to get a sense of the scale of difference here, because I kind of have an inkling as to what the numbers are going to be. Don't ask me how I know. I do my research. But talk to us about the the disparity between the assets that Black-owned banks have as compared to the assets that banks that are owned by people of color have, even if they're not a Bank of America. Great question. Um, So, and and I do think it does go to not, not just where we are as a community, but also our need to really you know, trust trust ourselves. Um, but if you look at Asian American banks, the largest Asian American bank has $30 billion in assets. Mm. If you look at the largest... His- Uh-oh, did we lose her? Or did y'all lose me? <laughs> somebody's lost, the it might be me. Bank. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I'm uh, sorry. I, I lost you. I, and I couldn't tell if y'all had lost me or if I my, my, something's happening with my Wi-Fi. So <laughs> I didn't know if we had lost you or if they had okay. lost me. But go go right ahead. You were saying the la- the largest Asian-owned bank, you said $30 billion? $30 billion, bi- billion with a B. $30 billion with a B. Uh, Latino, $20 billion with a B. $20 wow. billion. We, at this moment, don't have a billion-dollar Black-owned bank. $1 billion. Wow. So we, we as a, and, and a large part of it is because they do business with their community, Mm. you know, and we as a community need to not just, you know, bank black, we need to buy black, we need to build black, we need to support ourselves, we need to get over the notion that their ice is colder. And even in banking, you know, it's great. You know, people open up an account with us. That's great. But what you also need to do is you need to do the automatic savings. You need to use the account, you know, and and not just, you know, open an account. But, mm-hmm. you know, and the same thing with with buying a home. You you know, you buy a home, you need to identify some black electricians or plumbers or, you know, other ways that really we can support building wealth, that we can circulate our dollars, you know, black back into our community. We don't mm-hmm. do that enough. Mm-hmm. I love this. I'm grateful because the work really matters and it's going to matter, I believe, uh, increasingly more as we move into whatever next phase America is moving into. And we have wonderful examples, vibrant examples in the past of coming together and pooling resources. Uh, We recognize that we also need to ensure we have security plans now because we saw how how some of those examples went. But it all really does begin, uh, Terry Williams, with collective 
cooperative economics and building and maintaining our stores, shops, and other businesses, including our banking institutions, and profiting from (laughs) them together. I appreciate you being with us today. I'm sorry I didn't get to see your beautiful face the entire time because my Wi-Fi decided to wonk out. Uh, But how can people stay connected with One United? How can they find out more about you and the work that you're doing and add their vision to your vision so that collectively we are envisioning as much freedom for our folks as we possibly can muster? Yeah. So first of all, you can go to oneunitedone.com. Oneunited.com is our website. You can open up an account there. You can, as I said, you can bank black um, there. Um, but you can also follow us on, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. It's One United, One United Bank. Um, so we're, we, we do have a very active social media presence. Um, I think we've also on TikTok these days as well. Oh. So, you know, we're, we're, um, you know, doing a lot of outreach. We have uh, branches. We have offices in Boston, Miami, and LA, um, but we also have a digital platform. Um, but if you're ever in those cities, please stop by. I'm in Boston at the moment, but I also spend time in in Miami and, and Los Angeles. So, um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, please stop by. And yeah, we are, we're all approachable, you know, and I, I'd love to meet uh, customers and also people that are, are doing the things that we need to uh, see happen in our community. Absolutely. And one day I need to see you in person so I can thank you in person yeah, for the work that yeah. y'all do. Yeah, it is important. And I have a, a One United account, but I need to use it more. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, I appreciate even yeah, you yeah. saying that. We're going to make sure that the next savings, we're going to reroute some yeah, things yes. uh, because I want to be a yes, part yes. of reaching that building and moving beyond. Terry Williams, we are so grateful for you, sis. Thank you for being a part of this community, a part of this space, uh, and for just doing the work. It's very, very necessary. We appreciate you. No, thank you. And uh, again, lovely show. And uh, really, uh, thank you for it. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm.